Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is TV Take, Variety's television podcast. I'm Daniel Holloway. Today we talk with Mark Guggenheim, executive producer of Netflix's animated series Three Below. Later, critics Caroline Framke and Daniel D'Addario will discuss their dream Emmy nominees. Stay tuned. Mark Guggenheim, thank you for doing this. Hey, thanks for having me. So you've got uh, Three Below, which is part of the Arcadia series of animated shows that you and Guillermo del Toro do for Netflix. There's uh, new episodes of that coming up soon. Can you talk about, first of all, um, the world that you guys have created in which you have like a, a, a several shows that you're going to this is the second of a trilogy right that's right yeah we're doing uh basically tales of arcadia is the umbrella and that includes troll hunters three below and then a third series that will be coming out called wizards and it is this huge expansive universe where it, with three below we're actually literally making it a universe with multiple planets and uh leaving earth um and also returning to arcadia which is where troll hunters was set and what's what was how much of that world was built out at the time that you guys sort of pitched this and developed this um about a third of the way through uh production on troll hunters uh dreamworks and netflix uh came to Guillermo and said, we would love more. <laughs> we, we would like more uh, of, of what you're giving us. And uh, Guillermo had come up with the idea for Three Below and, and then later for Wizards. And because we knew that we were going to be doing these shows you know, fairly early on in the process of Troll Hunters, we were able to basically lay the foundation for both series in Troll Hunters. So you meet Aja and Krell, you meet Duxie, you meet the various characters that, you know, sort of come to the fore in the two series, the two spin-off series. Now, in the show, Aja and Krell are an alien prince and princess who are, um, they're basically on the run after a coup overthrows their family and yes. they're hiding out in this town, Arcadia. Um, they're essentially refugees who are living in hiding. That's so, right. This is a kid's show, but considering that you have that as its premise, how much do you guys talk about leaning into the sort of, like, cultural, social tones? That, that's a great question. You know, uh, Guillermo, Guillermo is uh, an immigrant himself, as is Rodrigo Blas, who also is the co-director on, on the pilots. And um, we talked a lot about what the immigrant experience wa- was like. And it was important for us to sort of, you know, shine a light on that experience. Well, at the same time, you know, it's a family show. It's a kid's show. It's not a polemic Um, But we wanted to just sort of tell, uh, you know, tell a story about people, you know, coming from, you know, a, you know, their home to a foreign place. Uh, The funny thing is, is that when, you know, when you look at, I think, drama, immigrant stories are, they make up so much of our narrative tapestry. And it's only in relatively recent times that 
that's even become a quote-unquote political thing. So for us, it was a matter of how do we just, you know, we take the politics out of it and just tell a story about what it's like to be a stranger in a strange land. And you have uh, also what the third principal character in the series is Varvatos uh, um, uh, Varvatos Vex, Vex yeah. yes, who's voiced by Nick Offerman. And I'm wondering um, when you have someone like Offerman as voice talent, and you're going into second season, how much are you writing to what Nick is able to do? Because he obviously has a really distinctive. He, he he does. And, uh, you know, the particular take on that character was something that Nick worked out, you know, hand in hand with Guillermo. Um, you know, Guillermo was there for his first few records and they sort of found the character together. Um, and then, of course, once you hear it, you you can't help but start writing to it. Um, and the the whole way that came together was was just very organic because. While we were doing the records on season one, we were writing season two. Uh, so we were able to take what we were hearing in the recording booth and basically bring it into the writer's room. And the joke of the Varvatos character is that he is, you know, this incredibly powerful alien warrior who is uh, disguised in the body of an elderly man who yes. loves chess, yeah? Who, lo- who discovers chess yeah. uh, on Earth, and that becomes his, you know, sort of, entry point into earth the the thing that he learns about human culture that he is just very uh enamored of the uh as you said this uh the idea of evolving and extending the original series into this broader world um was something that came along after you guys were already working on troll hunters um how has your approach to making these shows changed or evolved since that original first season of troll hunters that, that's a great question. Um, I would say the way I describe it is Troll Hunters is telling a very classic, you know, Joseph Campbell uh, hero's journey story. Um, I like to think we tell it well, but we're telling that, you know, very tried and true, um, you know, structure. Whereas with Three Below, we very intentionally, we wanted to push the comedy. We wanted to make it a bit more oddball, a bit more quirky. Uh, we wanted to try to tell a different kind of story, uh, a story that perhaps was less familiar. Um, and then with Wizards, we're basically looking to sort of bring everything together. Um, I think in many ways, Wizards combines like some of the, you know, the traditional narrative elements of Troll Hunters with the quirky oddball humor of Three Below. Um, so you sort of see how everything gets, you know, co- cohesive uh, with Wizards. You worked on the Arrowverse shows, and, and you're producing the upcoming crossover, yep. which has become a bigger and bigger thing every year. And I'm wondering, is that is there something similar to that, to that in what you're doing where you have shows where the tone is like maybe different from one to another by a few degrees, but all has to exist in this world where it's like, okay, I believe those two things exist side by side? A- absolutely. In fact, uh, the early conversations about Three Below that I had with the studio were mainly centered around the experience you know, I had doing the Arrowverse shows. And the thing that, for me, I take from the Arrowverse experience is the, a quote-unquote spinoff can't be a spinoff. It has got to stand on its own four legs. Uh, it has got to be its own show. It's got to have its own identity, even though it quote-unquote spun off from a show or is part of a shared universe, it has to be its own thing. Um, so if you, like, go back and you look at the pile of Three Below – You'll see, even though Toby uh, from Troll Hunters makes an appearance in the second episode, you know, if you hadn't watched Troll Hunters, 
you'd be perfectly fine. You don't need to have experienced troll hunters in order to understand what's going on three below. Similarly, you won't have had to have watched three below and troll hunters in order to understand wizards. And that really was, you know, the lesson of, of the Arrowverse experience. My experience watching the first episode of three below was, or th- watching the second, which was the first one that I saw was my son watching it, seeing Toby from troll hunters <laughs> come by and saying, Wait, is that the kid from Troll Hunters? And then having my then six year old explain to me the like universe mythology of this show, and I immediately felt sympathy for my own parents. Um, you've, you're also working on Carnival Row for Amazon, and I wanted to see if you could tell us what um, what that experience has been like so far, and where you guys are at with that. Um, you know, it's terrific. Uh, it, it's been a really great experience because. Um, you know, Travis Beecham, the co-creator of the show, uh, he has just created such this rich, vibrant world that's totally original. Um, the thing that, you know, I think the two things that attracted me to the project were, number one, just how, you know, profound the concept is. The concept, it, it deals with issues of immigration and issues of racism and classism and sexism, all these things that we're talking about in our society today are represented in this genre show. And I think genre always, you know, uh, has an easier time of, of holding a mirror up to society than necessarily, you know, non-genre shows do. The other thing that really attracted me was this world had never existed before. It, it doesn't, you know, it's not based on a novel. It's not based on a graphic novel. It's not based on a movie. It's its own unique animal. And I, I think we need more of that. You know, we need more of that in television where we are breaking new ground. And that's what, you know, this show does. Uh, that was one of the things that surprised me about it was that um, it's something that is created from whole cloth that yeah. you aren't based on IP. Yeah. And that's, you know, I, I think, you know, pre-awareness is fine. You know, The Godfather was based on IP. Sure. Uh, there's nothing nothing wrong with that. But I think, you know, there needs to be in our industry more of a balance uh, between the pre-awareness IP-based projects and the ones that are, you know, like you say, whole cloth, uh, you know, and that, you know, Carnival Road just scratches that other itch. Creatively, how freeing is that for you? Because you get to, for instance, you can decide how magic works. You can decide how the politics of this world work. Yeah, actually, uh, what's what's terrific is you can kind of go anywhere and do anything. At the same time, one of the things that Travis has done is he has figured out a lot of things. Now, just because, you know, he's got it written down in a notebook doesn't mean we're beholden to it. But it's great to have that as a structure and a framework to work off of because what it allows you to do is create a world that feels lived in, that feels real and tactile. The fact that, like, you know, Travis, you know, the show really takes place in one city, the Berg, but Travis has an entire global map with the names of every single country in that world. So it's great to know that if we want to refer to Ignota, we can refer to Ignota. Um, We don't have to invent these things. They are already there for us, and it makes the world feel real. Uh, The show takes place in a, um, uh, without giving anything away, it's sort of fantasy in a modern, in a more contemporary context. Yeah, it's it's a much more modern context than you uh, expect from like Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings. The, the way we sort of describe it is, imagine if you, you know, saw, you know, Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones and those worlds aged basically into the industrial age. So we're basically at a place in this 
fantasy world where we are just just slightly you know post industrial age. You were talking earlier about uh, the ability of you know fantasy and science fiction to hold a mirror up to society in ways sometimes that you know naturalistic stuff can't. Um, when you're doing something like this that is genre but is in a more uh, contemporary context, does that give you more power to sort of create things that are maybe more directly analogous to our world than if it was a classic, like, medieval sort of fantasy story? I think so. You know, I think there's certainly that opportunity. The trick, I think, is wielding that opportunity in a responsible way. Um, Like I said, trying to avoid it being a polemic. I I will say what's interesting is, you know, this project has been in development for for a good number of years, and and Travis uh, originally wrote it as a feature 15 years ago. And what has been so interesting to me is the issues of immigration and the issues of refugees from a war-torn country um, have actually only become more topical and more relevant uh, in the modern day than it was, you know, 15 years ago. So um, in, in some cases, it's not that the reflections of the real world are so much as intentional as the show has just you know, grown to reflect the world outside our window, albeit with mythological creatures and, you know, a, a, a Victorian kind of setting. How much when you're creating a show like this, how much are you thinking about what audience expect- expectations are now? Because we're in a post-Game of Thrones world, yes, and we expect everything to be happening on a movie scale with a show that exists specifically in these genres. Yeah, you know, we we talk a lot about the audience. Um, You know, we talk a lot about what their expectations are. Um, I will say for for Travis and me, we're that audience. So the audience's expectations are actually our expectations and vice versa. Um, You know, I don't think we've ever sat in a production meeting, though, and said, okay, well, this has got to be really big. Or we have got to have this many set pieces uh, in, in per episode. Um, we're just trying to tell the best story we can, and we're just very lucky that we're living at a time when the resources that are available to us as producers are just so great. Um, it's not like we're trying to catch Game of Thrones. In fact, you know, I, I you know, it's, the Game of Thrones comparisons are inevitable and unavoidable. At the same time. This show is so different from Game of Thrones. Um, yes, it has fantasy elements, and yes, it has a big scope and a you know a very generous budget. But it's very, very different from Game of Thrones. I think people who tune in expecting it to be a Game of Clones, uh, Game of Thrones, <laughs> ah, for instance, a Game of uh, Thrones clone is they're going to be disappointed. Um, but if they come to it on its own terms, I, I think they'll be really excited. When you're making something like this. Um, how much are you, because you're making it for Amazon, yeah. um, you know, how much are you able to sort of work on all parts of the season at once as opposed to sort of the way that you've worked in the past in broadcast where you're kind of going, you know, episode by episode? The, the best part about doing a streaming show with a short order is you get to do the, all eight scripts before you start production. Um, and that's a huge benefit. Um, one of the things we, you know, we discovered in prep was the fact that the more material we had in advance of actual shooting, the better everything could be. Um, you end up being able to put every single dollar on the screen. Um, you're able to just, you know, maximize all your opportunities. 
Um, you're able to maximize your locations. You're able to maximize your extras. It's just all these like little production things that come, you know, they, they just come to you as opportunities to the point where when uh, we were doing additional photography on the first season and uh, Travis and I had written some various sequences that we sort of described as the irresponsible version of the sequences. Uh, we, we basically were like, we're going to write the Cadillac version and then we're going to have Amazon and Legendary pull us back. And we ended up not making a single change uh, to save money. It was basically Amazon and Legendary were like, that's great, do that. You know, uh, the only change we made was the end of the first episode involves uh, this very uh, elaborate roof cha- rooftop chase uh, sequence. And we originally scripted it as uh, taking place in the rain because we thought that would be cool. And uh, Travis and I both love Blade Runner. Um, but we made uh, the compromise of losing the rain not for money but for safety. Um, when our stunt team told us that there was no way to safely wire the actors uh, so that they could run on these slick rooftops, we we're like, just just lose that. But again, you're you're making, you know, compromises for you know real practical reasons and not to try to hit a budgetary number, which is a really it's a wonderful thing. But you only get to do that if you have all the scripts written in advance. You've worked on um, you've worked on genre shows in the past. You write comic books. Um, you live sort of squarely in this world. Are you surprised when you look at the fact that you can get something like Carnival Road made and the producers are not pushing back on cost, when you look at the impact that Game of Thrones has had, when you look at the shows in the Arrowverse that you've worked on running for as long as they have, uh, just to see how popular that all this stuff that, you know, until recently was ghettoized has become? Well, it's funny you the as you were talking the que- the word that was in my you know head was ghetto like it, for the longest time you know comic books and genre science fiction and fantasy they occupied basically this pop culture ghetto and you know it, no one you know no one was buying comics no one was certainly going to these kinds of movies I mean yes obviously like there's Star Wars as a, an exception but for the most part. Uh, it's not until relatively recently that that genre has taken over all aspects of media and all corners of pop culture. Uh, am I surprised? Um, I guess so. I mean, it's fine. I don't know if I really thought of it in terms of being surprised. I, I am old enough that I remember the period of like comic books when comic books were always considered for kids. Um, and to the extent they weren't conserved for kids, it was always a surprise. Like, you know, the, the first, I mean, God, it took forever just to be able to get an article written about a comic book and a paper that didn't start off with some variation on, bow, piff, zap, comic books aren't for kids anymore. God, like, it took forever for us to, to get past that. Um, so I come from a, from a standpoint not of surprise, but rather of gratitude. I'm just really glad that comic books and genre and science fiction and fantasy aren't treated this way anymore. Mark, thank you very much. Awesome. This is fun. The nominees for the Primetime Emmy Awards will be announced Tuesday, July 16th. Daniel D'Addario and Caroline Framke talked about who their ideal nominees would be. The Emmy nominations are out on July 16th, and as always, there are way more shows than slots available for nominations, and since Dan and I watch more TV than just about anyone, we have so many 
shows and people we'd love to see nominated and uh we want to talk about them a little bit because we are not totally confident their names will come up next week so we want to make sure to give them a shout out in some other way on this podcast it's equivalent i think yeah absolutely (laughs) i mean voting for the emmy nominations has closed so we can't sway hearts and minds of all the many many emmy voters who i know are listening however (laughs) i hope we're sending some good vibes out into the universe for these really talented people who maybe aren't traditional Emmy favorites, but who are responsible for some of the season's most memorable to us work and really, as you say, rise above the clutter of the hours and hours and hours a day we watch. Exactly. So today we thought we'd start with comedy um, for a reason. And that reason (laughs) is that this year for us has really been defined by amazing, smart comedies. Uh, Too many, far too many for the Emmys to recognize. So we wanted to shout out a few of them today. Uh, in terms of shows themselves, uh, one show that I think hasn't maybe gotten its due af- as it wound down, it did when it first premiered because it was new and interesting, um, is Broad City. I think that show, which ended in earlier this year after five seasons, really brought itself to a smart an emotional close. Uh, I wasn't, frankly, expecting it to be that emotional, though looking back, I should have seen it coming. Um, so I thought that um, creators Abby Jacobson and Alana Glazer deserve a little bit more formal recognition than they have gotten for it. Yeah, interestingly enough, I, I share your kind of esteem for the final season, and I thought it ended really nicely. But I also just think it's interesting as a kind of observer of these things that it does seem as though they've that Comedy Central is kind of campaigning them, that they've put them forward. And I think that that's nice, at least, to see the confidence behind them. These are two people who are going to have really great careers, I think. Exactly. And I think Broad City's influence, uh, it was immediately felt in a lot of copycats that I don't think came (laughs) anywhere near what they actually do. And I think its influence is still being felt today. So I wanted to shout them out. Uh, Let's see. For Kami, uh, I think one we both agree on, if you want to talk a little bit about this one, is Pen15, Hulu's coming-of-age comedy from Anna Kunkel and Maya Erskine, which we both love (laughs) yeah absolutely this is kind of i think the most impressive of an increasingly impressive suite of shows on hulu they've really kind of found a niche that works for them in uh kind of offbeat minor key comedies uh i would also key i love that yeah (laughs) just like things that are a little bit kind of uh you know a, a bittersweet and kind of a note that not everyone can hear pen 15 I know as many people who are totally alienated by the premise, which is that uh, those creators and actresses you named uh, play versions of themselves as, uh, you know, very young teens in the early 2000s. And their castmates are all actual young teens. And so it's like 30 something, early 30 something women kind of play acting their adolescence, but doing so with this total physical commitment and this really kind of like moving story in a way it's kind of like a junior broad city it's these yes. two kind of us against the world girls uh going through middle school with all the emotional turbulence and social uh, angst that that implies yeah i think you can av- i could absolutely see them you know 10 years later living together in some shitty new york apartment <laughs> trying to make it through um so that's a really smart observation uh yeah. And proves my point about yes, the influence. Absolutely. And <laughs> Which I, think, I love. I love being right. I think that it is in 
the vein of Broad City, perhaps not that it's not totally its own thing, but maybe they wouldn't have had the confidence to uh, Hulu wouldn't have had the confidence to uh, put as much money and as much promotional muscle as they did behind this if if Broad City hadn't proven to be a hit. Yes. Um, talking about a couple performers in the comedy world that we like, um, another thing that you and I agree on is that on the generally superlative, the other two, Molly Shannon is absolutely terrific. There's a, a line when she, uh, her character, who is the momager of a young pop star, uh, she's on a talk show and she's describing the children's book she wrote. And she describes it as having, I think, eight very thick pages. It's just like, <laughs> she, it's this satire that is so kind of winning and loving. And she does not hate her character, but she sees her for kind of the somewhat silly, deluded person that she is caught up in this machinery. It's just a really sharp performance. Yeah, and I think, not for nothing, these the comedy supporting categories have been pretty uh, saturated with SNL stars as of late, and this would be a really good way to honor an SNL star hmm. for another kind of performance, so that's something I'm really into. Um, and speaking of supporting comedy players, yeah. who I think deserve a little bit more recognition i would say uh russian doll which i've talked about ad nauseum on this podcast so i won't like keep going on it but i do think that charlie barnett um did incredible work on it and i wish that he were more in the conversation in the way that natasha leone currently is i feel the same way about sarah goldberg and i think this is another one we agree on who from barry yes from barry who if the world were fair would be getting the kind of notices that Henry Winkler, who won an Emmy for the show last year and is likely to be nominated again, and Bill Hader, who won an Emmy for the show last year and is likely to be nominated again. <laughs> it's funny. It, I feel like genre confusion may play a role in that Goldberg, who plays this kind of actress who's kind of aging out of the moment in her life when it's even realistic to hope that it might happen for her, but she kind of keeps on pushing and keeps searching and keeps trying to deepen her craft and keeps trying to find the right role. It's actually very moving, poignant, and outright sad. And I think it it doesn't quite slot into comedy, less certainly less so than Winkler's performance. So I feel like it gets a little bit lost, but she's doing incredible work. There's one moment she does she has this monologue where she's panicking about an audition and she hits so many different emotional beats in that in that one moment that I was like She's someone that I think we should be talking about a lot more. And I think her storyline in general is a big part of why Barry season two worked. Agreed. Uh, but as long as we're, you know, and again, we have, we have said this before. So loyal <laughs> listeners, you know that we think Barry is a drama. Yes. But speaking Let's of move dra- to the, the things that are officially slotted as drama. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so in the drama sphere, we identified um, mostly performers who we'd like to see nominated. And in that vein, I would say I... Do you think we'll see Killing Eve represented, which um, I did not love the second season as much as I wanted to by any stretch. But I do believe that the um, deserved praise for Sandra Oh has eclipsed Jodie Comer in a way that I uh, am sad about because I think she's giving an incredible performance every week in this season. Especially she had to carry a lot of story beats that just didn't make as much sense. And she really sold them in a way that it took me maybe longer than it should have to be like, What's going on with this season? Yeah. It's interesting looking at the way Killing Eve is generally received now that I think it is a major hit. And I think that kind of the stage has been set, especially with 
the category kind of emptying out of last year's winner and a lot of its nominees for O uh, to take the prize. She didn't just win a Golden Globe. She hosted the ceremony. She's kind of a having a bit of a cultural moment. And it takes nothing away from her to say that I think Comer does. It's like that adage about how Ginger Rogers did everything Fred Astaire did, but like backwards <laughs> and in heels. I just think it's like a more complicated, it's the more complicated role of the pairing. Yeah. And I think it's just never has a false moment, despite how incredibly strange and odd the situations the character finds herself in are. Yeah, I think if it were, if... O's character were played by anyone but O, Jodie Comer would be having a moment kind of like Tatiana Maslany in Orphan mm-hmm. Black, where it's the same sort of shapeshiftery role that announces her in such a big way. So I don't think she's in any danger of being forgotten in general. Would have would love to see her in the nominations. But as long as we're talking performances, we also identified a couple supporting um that we'd like to see. I think it's pretty safe to say that they'll, these categories will be overwhelmed by Game of Thrones people. Yes. But I would love to hear from you on a couple of supporting people that you're into. Yeah, I think that um, Jarell Jerome, uh, who is in an interesting position in When They See Us, where he's one of the so-called Central Park Five, uh, five young men who were imprisoned for a crime they were later uh, found not to have committed. And freed, um, and he kind of has has a smaller presence in the early going, and then the final episode of this limited series is really all him. And I do feel like it's hard to stand out in these limited series categories if you're not a major star. But I I think that this is a star making performance for someone who was as good as he was in Moonlight, and now this he kind of anchors this episode growing up in prison, kind of. And struggling to find his way even after he's out, having been socialized within that world. Um, this is being campaigned as a lead. I could I could say... Is oh, it, it going, is? No, no. This next one is. Oh, I uh, see. Joey King is being campaigned as a lead for the act. I could see it going either way. Uh, but she certainly is another young person who I think people are now alive to quite how talented she is. She plays... Uh, Gypsy Rose Blanchard, a young woman at the center of a famous true crime case who was made sick by her Munchausen mom. And uh, King plays such an interesting mixture of uh, insecurity, uh, naivete, wanting to be free of her mom, but also knowing that she not only isn't quite able to be, like wouldn't know what to do with herself, but also is kind of like addicted to the sickness of their relationship in her own way. It's a really adult performance by a very young performer. And I think that as competitive as that category is with stars like Amy Adams of Sharp Objects and Michelle Williams from Fozzie Verdon, I would really like to see King represented as much as I would like to see Jerome and kind of introduce a new generation to the Mm -hmm. Emmy stage. I love that. So very quickly before we leave, we, as you can probably tell, we could go on about this forever. Oh, yeah. Um, let's just mention a couple um, drama series that we'd like to see um, represented more. For me, I will stump for Stars as Vita, which did campaign. It's a half hour, but it did campaign to be considered in the drama category, which I think is correct and more people should do it. Yes. People, shows, you know what I mean. Uh, I think it's really smart. It... Uh, it did a portrait of two Mexican-American sisters coming back to their hometown in East L.A. and trying to grapple with that. And particularly, I think Michelle Prada 
has done a really astonishing job with a really tough character. Um, and what about you? I would stump for another dramatic limited series, which is Maniac, a show that I think I like more than most and that I think has been pretty widely kind of just the culture kind of moved on from. But I think that it's really beautifully done. I The story of kind of two people finding each other in the midst of a kind of pharmaceutical drug trial uh, and kind of working together to overcome uh, their various uh, traumas from their past. I think uh, Emma Stone, it's, you know, it's hard to feel bad that Emma Stone, one of the biggest stars in Hollywood, isn't getting enough attention, but I think she's <laughs> really special in it. I think she's doing really dialed in work. And I think that uh, the show generally and she specifically uh, would be well worth recognizing if only it's sitting there on Netflix for people to discover in the years ahead. And I hope they do. But if they don't, there's always more TV where that came from. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with Danielle Brooks of Orange is the New Black. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.